I go up on deck for my first big league at bat. I'm on deck, I'm getting loose. I get a tap on my shoulder and Biggie Molina goes, hey man, he's like, you mind if I hit before you? I'm hitting eight. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm, where we're talking to former professional baseball players to reminisce about their playing days and what they learned on their journey from amateur ball to the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Bandujo. Today's episode, I am talking to former big league infielder and two-time Baseball America cover boy, Brandon Wood. If you're unfamiliar with Brandon's story, which if you're listening to this podcast, you probably aren't, here's a quick refresher. Angels first-round pick from an Arizona high school in 2003, record-setting season in 2005 in high A that vaulted him to the top of the prospect rankings, few years of hype in the high minors, and then a big league career that was undone by anxiety. Brandon was very generous with his time and open about both his incredible successes and mental health struggles during his big league career. We talked about what it's like to hit 57 home runs in a calendar year, coming to terms with the word bust, and how he's relaying those tough lessons learned with the youth instruction he's doing now. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, share with your friends. Also, make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. It's top 10 prospect season, and BA and JJ Cooper have also been on top of everything going on with the new minor league baseball reshuffle, keeping subscribers as up-to-date as possible. For future guest info of this podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Bandujo. But for now, let's talk to Brandon Wood. All right, joining in for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, he was the 23rd overall pick in the 2003 draft by the Angels, former big league infielder Brandon Wood. Brandon, thanks so much for joining From Phenom to the Farm. Great to be back with Baseball America. Surprise, it was fun. Longtime fans of your work at, at BA, uh, very much an early supporter. Uh, we, we have a lot to talk about about that history. I want to get right into it. Let's do it. Uh, Brandon, you, you grew up, you were born in Austin, uh, played at high school ball in the Phoenix area. When did you know that, that playing baseball at the next level, you know, whether that be D1 or, or pro ball, what it eventually was, was a realistic possibility? Because in the, the 2004 Baseball America Angels Top 10, it mentions that you were a 5'10", 130-pound freshman who would get DH'd for. Is that, is that true? Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> that's definitely true. Um, I don't know if my parents did a really good job when I was young and, and small and underdeveloped, but I can't remember a time where going to the University of Texas wasn't uh, a dream of mine. And so you you committed to the University of Texas. How did you go from five foot ten, hundred and thirty pound freshman who was getting DH four to University of Texas commit and draft prospect? You know, looking back, I mean, being 5'10", 130 pounds and playing with 18-year-olds, my dad hit me, I'd say, an average of 200 ground balls a day for six years in preparation of trying to make varsity as a freshman. That became my first main uh, or real baseball goal. Um, And I made it, but two things. I mean, if I ever backhanded the ball, I had to one-hop it across the diamond. My arm wasn't strong enough. And hitting I could barely get it out of the infield so it was a uh, it was a head coach named Eric Kibler um, who's worked with Team USA and some of those uh, uh, affiliates but 
he just saw a glove. He saw potential. Um, he saw my drive. He gave me a shot. And I started 35 games, played all seven, and got 13 at-bats. So that'll tell you. Any knocks in those 13? I believe I had like two. I want to say my average was like 270 or something like that. So I take it. That's At least you didn't go hitless because that would have been a long <laughs> off season for the sophomore year. A lot of, a lot of buildup. Um, once you physically matured, put on a few more than those 130 pounds, got later in your high school years. Um, when did basically, when did the, when did the school start calling? When did Augie Garrido call? Yeah. So I, uh, I put on a bunch of weight, not a bunch. I mean, like the next year I was, you know, six, two, probably 150 and did all my training uh, just starting out at Athletes Performance, um, which is now EXOs. Um, so I did a lot of training with them, got some speed done, some speed work done, built some strength. And i say it was my junior year, going into my junior year, my name started to, to float out there. And I don't know if that was for you know a couple of showcases I went to in California. Um, and I did well at the showcases, started to show power. So I went from no home runs freshman year, one sophomore year, eight junior year. Uh, and then that was just combined with playing shortstop, which over time just became natural, you know, by pure work between me and my father. So when you, you commit to Texas, there, there's a, you know, a thing with, with uh, the MLB draft. They talk about signability, how, you know, how strongly committed a guy is to school. Sometimes guys will, will actually turn down millions and millions to go to college out of high school. How strong commit were you? Because you're you're from Austin. How passionate were you about playing at UT, or was it just a, you know, a placeholder in case the draft didn't work out spring of your senior year? No, UT was uh, a legit dream. I mean, I have pictures of me in a Longhorns hat from you know birth until you know 18 years old. I was just always just envision myself playing there, and then I visited the campus. Um, it helped they sent like six diamond cheerleaders to pick me up at the airport. Um, and That's then, a nice you know, perk. Yeah, I was like, oh, man, this is what college is about? Okay, I'll go here. Augie knows what's up. <laughs> Augie knew what was up. Yeah, then we went to dinner with Augie that night, and, uh, and his uh, significant other was, uh, was pretty good herself. So he definitely put in the time to know what a uh, 17-year-old boy wants to see other than baseball. Um, but I was, I was driven to go there. It was going to take... Uh, I guess once the draft looked like that could be a possibility, um, I think, you know, my dad and I, my mom, we sat down and said, hey, what kind of money would be life-changing? And we came up within the first uh, uh, three rounds or basically the first two rounds and the few after, uh, and I'd sign. And that really just made it kind of an easy transition going into senior year, knowing that worst case scenario, I'm going to go to University of Texas on a full ride. So spring of your senior year then, when did you realize you're probably not going to Texas? Oh, man. Well, that's hard because my first game, uh, there was it was bad weather. It was February, Arizona. It was cold, raining. Um, there was I didn't realize weather like that existed in right? Arizona. Yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it was like, come on, it's got to be the first game. But uh, I knew there was going to be some scouts there just based off of uh, – my agent who wasn't my agent, who was, you know, I'd committed to, um, and, you know, some of the rumblings that he was hearing, uh, we thought there was going to be some scouts there and I get off the bus and there's just like a crowd of 
scouts. You know what scouts look like. You know what I mean? They, they wear the same clothes, same hats. They walk the same, talk the same. And I was like, whoa, there's like 50 of them. And I'm like, well, this is, uh, this is legit. But I don't remember being nervous. You know, I just remember thinking like, oh, well, that's just part of the game. All right, let's go. Um, smashed the ball my second at bat. like home run and it was fair by 15 feet. The umpire called it foul. My dad's still pissed about it. Um, but after, you know, still feeling like myself with those scouts there, I felt like, all right, well, this year should be fun. We'll see. And then how was the lead up to pre-draft? When did, you know, when did you know that not only was that that top two round, but first round when, how, what was the, how did you wind up an angel? Because in, in baseball, it's not always about talent. The, the MLB draft is, is so weird in that sometimes, you know, a guy's more signable here. Or teams have a preference for, you know, college arms, things like that. So how did, how did that wind up for you? When did you realize you were going to be an angel? Well, I, you know, I, I think it was probably three quarters of the way through the season. Um, I had 15 home runs. I ended with 20, which was uh, one short of the state record, which is why my dad's pissed about that first one. Um, so it was around that time that my agent started fielding phone calls. He's, you know, doing his work behind the scenes. And then it comes to about four days, I think five days before the draft. And, uh, my agent calls me up and goes, hey, the Pittsburgh Pirates, they're real interested. They're going to offer you like 900000 for the supplemental first round or whatever it was. And I was like, all right, let's do it. Sign, <laughs> sign right now. And he's like, no, they're lowballing you. And I'm like, what? What is that? What do you mean? 900000 and you're, and you're saying they're lowballing. So then that was a wake-up call going, okay, this might be like a real, real thing. So that was the first time I ever heard the money. Um, and then back in that day, the draft comes around. Agent goes, hey, we think it's going to be between the Diamondbacks and the Angels. I think the Diamondbacks had the 22nd pick or the 21st. And um, we got on the computer just like I'm doing now, mom, dad, sister, uh, breakfast. And we're just huddling around the computer. No, there's just audio uh, sounding like the guy, you know, just an old guy telling the draft. It's not like it is today. It's just saying, you know, 23rd pick is Brandon Wood. And uh when that happened, it was, that's when it all just kind of hit me. I didn't, I didn't have much of a sense of what that was going to be until they say, here, here's your, you're the first round draft pick of the angels, number 23 pick. And also you're going to be, you're going to get more than a million dollars. So what does an 18 year old do with $1.3 million? Because it, I know like when I was 18, if I heard $1.3 million, that'd be just the most money in the world. I'd be my own personal Jeff Bezos. <laughs> All I could get my mind wrapped around was uh, I wanted a Denali. And my dad was, uh, you know, really, you know, not strict. I'd say he's just his, his eye was on, hey, you deserve this. Get something that you want, and we're going to put this money away. Um, so I got a Denali, and I got all the important things, like a 15-inch screen that you flip down in the back where you can't see in reverse. You know, my front screen played movies on it when you're driving. I mean, just the worst things that you could possibly put into a vehicle uh i put in there and thought that they were very important <laughs> you, you have to get in, in the early 2000s you had to get all the all the screens and stuff the unnecessary screens oh it was bad and i think it was in there a year before i walked out and it was ripped out of the roof and the windshield was broken i mean it's it's all just lessons learned just lessons along the way so 
Uh, but you sign early enough, you get 60 games in. So you get right out there. You're not waiting until the deadline. You're you're out there, and you get you know you get 42 games in the in the Pioneer League in short season, which unfortunately is is no longer going to be reality in um, in baseball. But it's conversation for another day. Um, that that first you know that first 60 game stretch between the AZL and the Pioneer League, jumping from high school in Phoenix to to pro ball. How do you think you stacked up? Like, what was the you know did did you feel still feel good about your decision uh, signing instead of going to Texas? I did. I think we, once I I signed, and it was one of those deals where I wasn't the type of person, or we weren't the type of family to you know, hey, we're gonna stick this out for two hundred more thousand dollars, just like you guys are committing. 1.3 to me. I'm committing my career to you. Let's go play baseball. The weird thing about Arizona is I went and signed. They, they came to my parents' house and I signed with uh, a coach and my scout and uh, I believe another gentleman. And then I get in one of their cars and we drive 30 minutes to Mesa. Uh, and I go into the clubhouse at Gene Autry. Um, I was wearing board shorts and a white tee because I thought that's what I that's what I wore before my high school games and found out real quick that you need to throw on some pants and a collar before you go to the uh, the clubhouse. So it's a little different getting into professional baseball because I went straight from high school playing on the exact same spring training fields in summer ball as a high school kid to just playing on those fields wearing an Angels uniform and you know having a wood bat. It wasn't until uh, I got called in uh, to our coach's office, my manager, Brian Harper, and he said I was going to Provo. And getting out of the Arizona League, I looking back, is everybody's dream because a lot of people get stuck there. So when I heard I was going up, pure ecstatic. That I felt like I was going to the big leagues. Um, and then my main goal from there was like, hey, I don't want to be an a-hole first-rounder. You know, all you hear is people, yeah, I hate this first rounder. He's got money. He changed. He's like this. So my goal outside of baseball was to make sure that I didn't become that. So that when you head up to Provo and then your first full year in Cedar Rapids, the, the thing with, with minor league baseball is that you have first-round pick money, first-round pick expectations, but you're surrounded by a bunch of dudes who are your age, maybe just a little bit older if they came from college. Who does a young guy turn to to learn how to be a professional? Because you know, to to who do you turn to to find out that you need to wear a collar shirt and pants to the ballpark? You know, I gravitated towards uh, guys that were two or three years older than me, guys that went went to college. Uh, Matt Pauley was my my best buddy going through the minor leagues, and he's a he's from Texas, uh, the Houston area, and he just. He had that demeanor about him that I liked. I knew that if we went out to dinner, if we went somewhere that, you know, we were going to, you know, hold our own as, as being professionals away from the field. So uh, you kind of want to make sure that you're hanging around with those guys. I mean, everybody still like to have a good time, but, you know, you want to steer into the direction of having a good time that didn't end up in handcuffs or DUI or, you know, things that could probably be much worse. What's the biggest challenge in your first full season in, in Cedar Rapids? Is it the competition? Is it the weather? Because coming from Phoenix, can't imagine Cedar Rapids was uh, was very friendly weather-wise, at least early in the year. Um, you, you know, you turn in a solid year. What's the biggest you know transition you had to go through? I think games played. You know, just the amount of baseball that is played. You, you don't... Really, I mean, I played as much baseball as a youth being in Arizona where we play year-round, 
Um, but it was, hey, we're playing today, tomorrow. We're playing on our off day because we got snowed out. And we're going to play a double header on that off day. Then 14 days in a row after that. You know, so I, I go in, you know, 175 pounds. And by the end of the year, I'm 150. Um, I go from like a 32-ounce bat. I'm trying to use a 30-ounce bat. Uh, and then, you know, my numbers just trailed off at the, you know, second half of that season. Um, it wasn't competition. It was, I think it was just purely, uh, the grind of playing every day, but more so the mental grind of not having success, waking up and starting over or having success and then not being too eager to chase pitches and, and put yourself in a slump. So after that first year in Cedar Rapids, where again, you, you know, you turn in a solid year, you're not a world beater, still, a, still an Angels top 10 prospect, though. You've had a year to stack up to pro competition. In your mind, what's your ceiling? When do you get into the big leagues? What kind, of, what kind of player are you? What are you thinking for the next, at least the next year? Well, the way that I ended in, in 04, you know, I, I was just gassed. And it was kind of a... a rumbling, you know, being a high school sign, hey, should we send this guy back to low A ball and have him start out strong and then go to high A? Or should we have him go to high A? So they take me into spring training um, as if I'm going to high A. I have the worst spring training to, to date that I've ever had. And uh, the manager, uh, Tyrone Boykin, he, he came up and told me later, he's like, I, I tried not to get you on my team. That's how bad your spring training was. Like, I, you, I thought for sure you had to go back to, to low A ball, but they decided, hey, we're going to push him, see what he can do. Um, I had a horrible spring training and then showed up to the Cal League. So I would take it heading to Rancho Cucamonga, you did not think that you were going to make pitchers in the Cal League hate your guts by the end of the year. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think... Uh, Bone, we call him Tyrone, uh, my manager, he, uh, he was pleading with the front office not to have to bat me in the third hole or, you know, in the top three, he's like, let me just put him down at like seven, eight or nine. Um, so I, I had that sense, but I didn't know the inner workings. I didn't know if what I was doing was a part of the grind or I knew I was sucking in spring training. Um, but for whatever reason we show up and we're playing this college team, you know, preseason, um, I'm like, well, you can't get any worse. I stood up tall, which I was normally spread out a little bit. I stood up tall, relaxed, and like second at bat, I hit one probably 420, 430 over the, the batter's eye in Rancho. And I was like, that's weird. Like, it was weird enough to where guys like coming in, they're like, oh, sh- where'd that come from? I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> let's see, you know, let's see, let's see what happens next. Next game, I do it again, and then it just, it just went on from there. Okay, yeah. So uh, you had a few more like that in this year. I want to lay everything out with the 2005 season, then kind of unpack yeah. it. 43 home runs in Rancho, another 14 in the Fall League in 29 games, 101 extra base hits. Uh, this year, Baseball America's Matt Eddy called that the seventh most significant minor league achievement of the past 40 years. So, like, <laughs> decent season. Um, the Cal League is noted for being hitter friendly, but you led the league in homers by 15. So it wasn't a Cal League thing. Um, aside from a short 38-game stretch by Stephen Drew, uh, he, who had like an anomaly slugging percentage, something he never I remember repeated. That. <laughs> yeah, you, you led the league in slugging by 34 points over everyone who was not 38-game Stephen Drew, and you were nearly three years younger than the league average age. Like, How long do you have to go into a season like that before you start looking around realizing that no one else is hitting like this and what you're doing is special? You know, it was an interesting season that 
you know, if I could go back to that mentality of, I just didn't worry about the next day. I was just playing in the present. And it was, wasn't until, I guess I felt my, my first signs of pressure or of reality that I'm doing something that um, is more than just a great season was uh, the rumbles of the, the Bauman Award, I believe it was called, for most home runs in the minor leagues. Um, and the guys were telling me in, in August, hey, if you hit this many, you're, you're going to beat out everybody in the minor leagues and you get two grand per homer or something like that or 500 bucks per homer. Um, and I was like, okay, well, we'll see what this is about. So then I started to focus on those numbers and hitting homers. And I think, I don't know if we looked it up, there had to be some point in August where I went through this slump of trying to hit home runs to be that person in the minor leagues. Um, and it was some restless nights. It was the first time where I was staying awake, thinking about the next day. Uh, but somehow I got over that. I don't really know how. Um, and, and I just went on to, to finish out the year and go into the fall league. I racked my brain to come up with a better way to ask than this and like, how did you do this? But it's just really what I want to know. What goes into going from an 11 home run guy in Cedar Rapids to a 43 home run guy in Rancho? Is it, was it just that, that mental, that, that ability to relax? Was it, you know, was it some sort of physical? Was it something different you did mechanically, like standing straight up? Was it just a combination? How did you transform into that kind of offensive player? I think it was a transition of, of relaxing in the box. Um, and then that first game of having success, uh, and then following it up the next game with success. And then it was like, I belong here, you know, and then it, then I kind of just went into a groove and a confidence of just trusting what I had, knowing that if I struck out four times, which I was really good at striking out, you know, if it, but if I struck out three or four times the night before, Hey, I'll go out and pop two tomorrow. You know, that was, that was the mindset. It was, uh, you know, going over six and the coach going, Hey, do you want to go, go work on something down there? I'm like, no, I'm okay. You know, I, I feel like, you know, my swing's where it needs to be. So I, I didn't read into uh, a lot of the extra curricular of baseball, I guess you could call it. You know, it wasn't, uh, I didn't watch a lot of video. I wasn't dissecting my swing. I wasn't dissecting pitches. Um, my brain, and I've learned this over the years, just doesn't work with that hyper-focus on things that, that I can't necessarily feel. Um, so I would have gone back and really, really dissected how I felt um, to transition that into future years. The weird thing about the Arizona Fall League, and I, like, I've always been super fascinated with the Arizona Fall League. I think it's an incredibly cool concept. I'm glad baseball does it. I hope it is, it is back in 2021 uh, post-COVID. But at least how it used to be was you have a break in between your minor league season and the Fall League. When you show up to the Arizona Fall League after you've put together this this massive season at Rancho, how did you how did you keep the ball rolling? Because at that point, pitchers realize you're dangerous. You're the guy with a target on your back in the lineup. Did you did you were guys throwing to you any different? You still hit it. How did how did that fall? Because I mean, 14 home runs in 29 games is just out of this world. It was a. Uh... I got to the fall league and I, I believe I worked out a, a little bit at the angels complex before uh, I headed into the fall league, but then you step into that clubhouse and it, and they do a great job of giving you a big league type of feel, you know, the things that you do in preparation of the fall league, the dinners or events or 
being able to call the director of the folly to, you know, set you up maybe with like a dinner reservation or something. They just really put you in the, in the setting of, Hey, you have a chance to do this and be this. Let's see what you got. And I had that confidence just rolling from 43 home runs. Um, and the team that I played on, I mean, that whole league, we, everybody just hung out together. So there wasn't, you know, the pressure of, of your season stats or winning the ball games. It was just, hey, we're all good. Let's go out there and be good. And I mixed, you know, even more confidence than I had uh, rolling out of the Cal League. And the pitchers were better. Um, they were older. They were, you know, hitting their spots like I hadn't seen. But I just kept adjusting and making adjustments. And uh, it was just a, a level of... Uh, baseball that I don't think I ever uh, replicated even you know going into the Cal League I mean I had four home runs in one game um, another you know couple home runs here and it was just like everything I saw was just in slow motion uh, the fourth home run I hit of that game the guy was throwing like 98 miles an hour and I, I mean it, it honestly looked like it was coming in at you know 82. That, that seems like a nice place mentally to be. <laughs> God, give me say. that. <laughs> when you head into that offseason, so this is after the AFL, after a, a manager in the Cal League compares you to Cal Ripken Jr., after you've hit you know, your BA's top Angels prospect, your everyone's top Angels prospect, in your mind, what are you? Do you have any doubts about your future that, that other people don't? There's a knock on you that you strike out too much, but it's your Cal Ripken Jr. or Troy Gloss. What do you think you are? You know, it was is a little disheartening after the season to, you know, get a phone call uh, and the phone call is, hey, you had a great year, uh, but you strike out way too much. If you're going to make it to the big leagues, then you, you have to cut down on your strikeouts. Uh, and that was the start of the obsession over not striking out, which got in the way of of just being a free swinger. So in that off season, then did you did you make some sort of concern? Did, what kind of work do you put in to not strike out? Is it all mental? Is it all just I just need to I need to hit the ball, or is there some sort of mechanical adjustments you make? Because I mean, now strikeouts are such a huge part of the game. Yeah, what kind of effort goes into to changing that? You know, it, with the way it was when, when I was coming up, and especially in the Angels organization and uh, uh, Mike Sosha run organization, who, uh, you know, strikeouts weren't a part of the way that he played, and he didn't like them and didn't want them. And um, unfortunately, I think strikeouts were just a part of my game. I don't think it was, uh, there wasn't a mechanical adjustment that was going to uh, drop them. There wasn't, uh, I tried spreading out, choking up, um, dropping my hands lower because they're worried about my, my hands dropping. But, you know, I dropped my hands since I was nine years old and found a way to, to make it work at a high level. Um, so then you start focusing on, you know, choking up, spreading out, uh, ground balls to the right side, you know, just nice, easy ground balls up the middle. It wasn't the mindset of, hey, I don't care if you strike out, you just keep driving the ball like that and playing defense at short it became a, a focus of my, my own and a, and definitely a focus of the organization. Has there been any part of you since you left baseball, you know, looking and seeing how things are going right now that kind of wishes that you'd come along 10 years later? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, it's funny because I say that I say that all the time going around our complex uh, that I have here in Billings. I'm like, I was like, geez. I mean, you you look at guys like Mike Trout, who you know, the best of the best coming through the minor leagues. And when I talk to the kids I teach, I say, hey, you know, I was the Mike Trout coming through the minor leagues. There was there wasn't a difference in in his hype to my hype, um, but he trusted in what he did all the way through, and I started to second guess mine and look at those strikeouts. So I think it would have been, uh, well, who knows? I mean, you know, maybe I would have, you know, been a slap hitter or something. <laughs> but I believe if strikeouts were, were okay with uh, the majority of the people in baseball, then I would have been okay with them and, and not been such a mental case uh, about them in the future. Well, 06, your, your double A, your first double A season. And then, um, and then 07 in Salt Lake, you're still putting up good numbers. You're still, you know, you're still the top prospect. You're still highly regarded. Do you have self doubt at that point though, about the strikeouts? Is it still in your mind? You're just, you know, you're just able to still hit that pitching. Yeah, I definitely had some self doubt uh, after the double A season in 06. It was, uh, I think I, I hit around 275, 25 home runs, uh, left a month early to go play with Team USA. Um, and we, we played a lot of great baseball in Cuba for Team USA, and I had the game-winning home run of the last game. Um, so I, I left that year feeling like, all right, you know, I got through double-A. wasn't, you know, hitting over 300. I didn't hit 40 homers, um, but let's roll. And then my mistake was I went into um, – reading what everybody had to say about that. And there's just as many people saying that, hey, he's a hell of a prospect too. Uh, he had a down year, 25 homers. He's not quite the power guy. Double A got to him. His strikeouts were up. Average was down. Uh, he's not going to translate into a big leaguer. And So that <laughs> stuff got to you more than, than the praise. Because I, I was going to ask, you know, what is three years of being told you're, you know, you're going to be great due to your psyche, but is it more you're reading into the naysayers and that's what kind of started to creep in? Yeah, I definitely gravitated. Uh, my brain naturally would gravitate towards that negativity. And then I'd look back on who I had become as a prospect uh, and then go, wow, I'm like a mega prospect and I still have these doubters. What are they talking about? You know, am I going to make it? to the big leagues, can I transition into an everyday big leaguer? So after the 06 season, there was, uh, there was definitely some doubt. Not anything major, but just going like, is what I, can I do what I, I'm doing now there? So what would you go, if you could go back like post that double A season and just talk to that guy, what would you tell that guy when, you're, when he's heading into triple A? You know, I... I, I put my arm around them and I'd say, Hey, there's everywhere you turn, there's going to be people that love you. There's going to be people that hate you, but there's always going to be those core people that have your, have your back. Um, and I, I'd, I'd say, Hey, instead of, you know, going home and stressing about what people are writing or, or, you know, trying to maintain your level of uh, a mega prospect, go out and go fishing, take your mind off the game Whenever you want to go in there and, and go into those negative thoughts of what the worst case might be, you know, find something that is uh, that is more your identity than than just being a baseball player. When you get into 07 and you head, you know, you're you're in AAA. You're still only 22. 
are you are you still itching for that big league call up to kind of prove this prospect type, or is there is there worry there? Is that is that and is that anything in the back of your mind of like I don't know if I'm ready? I don't remember going into the 07 season with much much doubt. I think I uh, I got called up fairly quickly, and I think I was hitting you know decent when I first got called up three weeks into the year. Uh, so I don't think I had much time for doubt, and I had a uh, gosh, I had just, I was one, 10 at bats in big league camp the, the year before. Um, my years might be different on that, but I mean, it was, uh, I was pretty, pretty relaxed, like feeling like, okay, now I'm in triple a. That means that if I, if I put up numbers, I should be good to go. Well, walk me through the first call up, man. Um, that's just a completely different reality that hits you than getting drafted in the first round you know getting drafted in the first rounds of a part of the goal you know or getting drafted is a part of the goal but the main goal from five years is hey I'm going to be a major league baseball player Um, my parents never told me that I couldn't be that Uh, it's what I envisioned every day of my waking life until that that point um, that hey I'm going to be in the big leagues and then uh, I get a call from uh, uh, Brian Harper, he was the first one to send me out of Arizona and he was the first one to send me to the big leagues. And he goes, Hey, Woody, what are you doing? I was like, Oh, just hanging out on the off day. He goes, what do you think about taking batting practice in Anaheim tomorrow? And like, I just, he's got like lightheaded euphoria. Like, did, did he just say that or, or did I hear something different? So you knew uh, what was up right away. Yeah, I'm like, oh, man, are you, for real? And I kind of get goosebumps now thinking about it just because it was all of, you know, you could say 16, 17 years of dreaming and hard work and ground ball after ground ball, swing after swing, workout after workout, and then you're there. And you know that you're packing your bags to go there. Uh, and that was a very surreal feeling. Do you remember your first AB vividly? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> first off, uh, I'm hitting nine, you know, which I'm in you know, on a big league roster. I hit nine. It doesn't matter. But I wasn't used to hitting nine. Um, so I go up on deck for my first big league at bat. I'm on deck. I'm getting loose. I get a tap on my shoulder. And Bidji Molina goes, hey, man. He's like, you mind if I hit before you? I'm hitting eight. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, oh, crap, yeah. And I can just imagine what Socia's thinking, like, look at this, God, get him out of here. So I come back down, and I'm just kind of laughing about it, and, and then I get back on deck, and I'm feeling like, I remember thinking you were about to walk to home plate in a major league game, and on my practice swings, my bat felt like it was about five ounces. I felt like Superman walking up there, Um and I, I had a, a really good at bat, went 3-2, ended up striking out. Um, but second at bat, line drive off the pitcher's shin, went straight to the first baseman. Um, and then it took me about seven, eight at bats to get a hit. But uh, very, it was almost like you were outside of your body watching yourself go to home plate. With how 2007 went, though, with being up and down four separate stints, was that... Was that frustrating? Was it still exciting every time you got up? Or were you, you know, in your mind, were you thinking, you know, hey, I just need, why won't they stick me up here? Yeah, I mean, in in 2007, it was, my mind was still pretty fresh and young to the business side of it and how things work. Um, 
So each time getting called up was great, um, but it wasn't until the end of that fourth or fifth call-up where reporters are coming to me and saying, hey, you're five for, what, 35? I don't even know what the numbers are. But it was over the course of like four months, you know, getting 30 at-bats. And I'd start the first game and I'd sit for six, start a game, and they'd send me back. And that was kind of the deal. And then I'd accumulate numbers. And at the end of that year, they were, uh, they were asking me if I thought that I belonged. You know, and, and that's when, as a young kid, you're like, I feel like if I got every day at bats, that I, I would belong, you know. So I don't, I don't feel like this is the, the right time to, to, you know, judge me as a player. Um, but when there's nothing to write about and, and, and there's something to, to write about, the, you know, the top prospect, you, unfortunately, if you have a mind like, like mine was, uh, it gets to you. So after that season, did you still feel like a top prospect going to like, were you confident heading into spring training of 08? Yeah, I was definitely uh, confident. I put in a lot of work, uh, really, you know, try to put myself in a position of seeing more pitches, still driving the ball and make the adjustments that was going to get me to stick there. Um, and I put up a heck of a spring training, you know, and the thought was, you know, I, I could be the starting third baseman and then... It was like, no, we're going to put Sean Figgins there. Your time will come. Go back to AAA. And you couldn't be any more different of a player from, from Sean Figgins. That's kind of- <laughs> I couldn't have been any more different from the starting, you know, seven, you know, besides Vladdy Guerrero and a couple other guys. I mean, you know, the, the team was based around, you know, high on base, uh, good defense, low strikeout, steals, you know, that little small ball, you know, social type game. And, uh, that wasn't me, and that, that was never going to be me. We, we learned to find out. Well, in, in 08, in, in Salt Lake, you're an offensive force. The 55 games you get in Anaheim, the, the wheels are kind of off. When you're down in Salt Lake tearing the cover off the ball, what are your thoughts about the big leagues? Is it just next time I'm up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this right in, or do the big leagues become this kind of enigma? Yeah, I believe in 08, I started out uh, pretty slow in AAA, Wondering, you know, why, why if I'm the top prospect in the organization and, and one of the top in the minor leagues, why am I going back to AAA when all my buddies that were in the fall league and they were getting their opportunity, why are they getting it bat after a bat? You know, Dustin Pedroia, you know, started off terrible. And I just remember watching his interview saying, hey, Boston, watch out. I'm about to break out. And I'm like, and he did, you know, he did after having that, that failure, um, Francona was just like, this is my guy. Um, so I had a little bit of, a um, a hard time grasping why I was going back to AAA and that affected me in those first couple months. And then after the all-star break, I remember having a conversation with my agent just being pissed, like I shouldn't be in AAA. And he's like, Hey, you're there. You got to do something about it. So then, you know, from the second half on, I don't know what my numbers went from, but I mean, I, I hit a, a ton of home runs, lots of RBIs. It was uh, one of the best stretches I've had, strikeouts to homers, to defense. It was just all there. Um, and then I get called up, and there was a span of about 75 at-bats where I played every day. I had to. All, everybody else was hurt. And for those, like, 75 at-bats, I was – you know, in the 250s, 260 range uh, with four or five home runs. It was just, then I knew I, I belonged. After that, though, so so people come back and then you start playing, you start playing more sporadically and it kind of, it brings mm-hmm. your numbers down. You head into the 08 offseason. 
did you feel did you still feel like you belong like there i mean at that point there's nothing more to be accomplished in triple a no yeah and i uh you know i had that mindset like i have nothing else to accomplish i mean i just you know put up 31 homers and 300 and something at bats and struck out under 100 times in in, in that span um so i've proven you know everything that they asked me to to prove, I proved, uh, went to the big leagues. Only real stretch I had in a year and a half of playing consistently, I did well. I helped our uh, our team, you know, go to the playoffs that year. I was on the playoff roster. Um, so even though, you know, there was parts of that season where I didn't have success, that mentally I had made the adjustment. And I was, I was all game to go in and, and be the starting third baseman. Well, then, 09, that doesn't come to fruition. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, that, that, that was harsh in how I was saying it, but you spend, you spend another 99 games in Salt Lake. Does that just feel like wasted time every game you, you spend there? You know, yeah, and I had a conversation with Sosha. I went in his office at the end of the 08 year. We're in the beginning of spring training in 09 when somebody interviewed me, and I, they said, you know, what, what, do, what do you think about your chances of, you know, making this team, I said, well, you know, to be honest, I, I don't think I have anything else to prove in AAA. I mean, I think my time is now. I'm ready to, to be the starting third baseman. You know, I had that confidence about me and to even speak about it. Uh, and then I was called into Socha's office, and he's, you know, hey, you always have something to prove. You know, you're going to have a long year in the in, in career in the big leagues. Uh, this conversation was basically the same. Every time you're a great player, you're going to have a long career in the big leagues. Uh, your time will come you always have something to prove. So don't ever say that again, <laughs> you know? So then, you know, you walk out going, man, you don't feel the love of like, I got a chance to make the team. Um, and then I started just kind of getting that sense, you know, but I, I just played through it. I think I had a pretty decent spring training in 09, uh, just to be sent back down for the third year. And you get, you know, you get another 18 games in the just another small sample size, not really enough time to prove. But in your mind, a, a sports psychologist I, I worked with a little bit in college always had this thing of, um, you know, like, like a traffic light, green light, everything's going well, yellow light, you know, things like I, I was, you know, I was a very bad pitcher. So it's like you got a couple runners on, but still, you know, nothing too bad's happening. And then red light, you know, merry-go-rounds going, guys are getting hits off you, you have no way to stop it. When in in that sense, in that in that weird analogy, when do things start getting to a yellow light, and worry creeps in of am am I actually not gonna hit in the big leagues? You know, um, I started to get some doubt after you know the numerous call ups and in one start and sent back in ten days. You know, it started affected the way I was playing in AAA. You know, you're just out of sync. You're not in rhythm. You're not in the big leagues. You're not in AAA. You're on the bubble. You know, you can't really get comfortable one way or the other. And, uh, you know, it was, I just remember it being one of those days, you know, in, in, in a big league locker room, you know, a lot of times there may not be, you know, there might not be something to write about or I don't know what, what it was. I just remember all of a sudden I had four reporters at my locker on a random day and we're all talking about how I'm not having success in the big leagues. And then I was like, hmm. Well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not. And why am I not? You know, like, you know, I would tell myself that, hey, you're, you know, you're, it's virtually impossible to have success in this role that you've been given. Uh, but it's really hard not to believe uh, the people that are writing it and then also your manager who basically uh, 
you know, doesn't really have that faith. You know, he doesn't have that faith in you moving forward. What are you doing to try to fix things? What's the, what outlets are you turning to? Yeah, you know, that in probably 08, 09, there was, uh, uh, you know, calling home. I wasn't going to get anything that, you know, I wanted to hear, needed to hear. Um, I didn't want to talk to anybody that says, hey, your time's coming. I'm like, I know it's coming, you know, but like, let's talk about now. What's going on now? You know, and then I, you know, the people are, hey, hang in there. You know, I just wanted somebody to just be like, this sucks. I'd be like, yeah, now let's do something about it. You know, like, let's go, let's go and, and play some big league baseball. Um, but unfortunately, I started gravitating towards the doubters and, and believing that that might be the reason that I'm not an everyday big leaguer and why Socha doesn't like my style of play is I'm just not fit for it. Um, and that would be the first probably 09 where I felt like after the games, you know, to get over, whether that was in the big leagues or in the minor leagues, to get over that uh, failure is when I, I started drinking, you know, beer. And then by the you know fourth beer, I was an all-star again. When it came to that, when it came to, I guess, self-medicating or anything like that and anything with your, your mental health, had you ever, did you ever approach anyone or even, even mention like, Hey, I'm mentally struggling right now with, with my confidence, with my drinking, with anything at all? Or was, was that something you tried to internalize? Definitely internalize it, you know, and, and internalize it to a fault with, with everything. But coming up in, in that era, in that organization, um, you, didn't, you didn't go to the trainer and say that you were hurt. Because if that got to social, then, you know, you're scared to death what, what was going to happen. You know, you don't go, you know, with, certainly don't go with like a mental issue or you're labeled from the get-go of, hey, we can't trust this guy in the ninth to make a play. You know, that you're immediately just turned into a, a, a mental, you know, head case, uh, and it happens quick. With your, your tenure in Los Angeles, which ended in, in 2011, um, how, how far did you let your, your drinking affect you? Was there anything on game days during games, or was it all just a coping mechanism post-game to try to get over this, this, this creeping feeling of failure? Yeah, 2010 was... Uh, that was a whole new uh, level of of mental illness struggle. Um, the very first game, I had a good spring training, everything, and then the, the starting lineup was called. Uh, I run out to third base, and I just kind of like I said in that uh, other interview that you you saw. It's like somebody injected like bottles of vodka into my system. Like I was just so lightheaded, I couldn't really breathe. Um, and I, I had this feeling of like, just pure fear of like, I, I have to have success here and I don't know how I'm going to do it because the ball looks like it's like, there's three of them. Um, you don't, your, your hand eye coordination when your brain's like that and you're going through like panic attacks, you don't have that hand eye. They don't, your hands don't do what your brain's telling them. And it's a terrifying feeling to be, you know, finally the starting third baseman and in the very first moment of the game after the umpire says play ball. That was my reality uh, until I retired. Really? So from those, you played 81 games for, for the, uh, for the angels that season, that year you made it the club out of spring training. So for all 81 games, you were just in a panic. Yeah. Beyond a, uh, beyond what would be normal. So that's when no medicating before the game, I was talking to, um, 
about May, June or something like that, I was talking to some doctors, some head doctors trying to figure it out. But after the games, it was, yeah, go out with the guys, go back to the house, whatever it was. But it always ended in, in drinking beer. And it wasn't even that much of a, uh, it was just kind of what a lot of guys did. I took it to the next level later at night. <laughs> did you ever open up to the Angels or subsequently the, the Pirates or any of the other organizations you were in that you were struggling with your mental health? Yeah, in this, you know, the, the discerning part about that is um, finally I built up the courage because it, it went from panic attacks would start when the game started to they would start when I would go out to stretch to start when I, you know, two hours before the game. And then at this point, I would get panic when I was driving down the freeway and I could see Angel Stadium. My jaw would get tight. I'd get lightheaded. Uh, that was the first signs of my panic was a tight jaw and lightheadedness. And once that happened, as I'm driving to the park seven, eight hours before the game, uh, I knew I was going to have to go in there and tell somebody. And knowing that I'm going to probably go tell this person and it's going to go directly to my manager and directly affect my future if it's not received well. Uh, and, you know, I went out and basically spilled my guts out to trainers and doctors. Um, and I think not only maybe a few days later, they had somebody called up from uh, AAA, Kevin Franzden, and uh, started him. And he had three hits. And that was the that just took me over to the, the next level of, of mental just struggle. In retrospect, are you still glad that you you told someone and you sought some help for that, or is there a better way you think you could have handled that, or you wished you would have handled that? Yeah, I, you know, I think I wish I would have gone in earlier. I wish I would have, you know, just gone in after the first or second game and said, "Hey, what's going on?" You know, I'm having these feelings, and I wish I would have had the confidence and comfortable the ability to go in there and say, Hey, I'm mentally struggling. I don't know if I'm having panic attacks. What do we think about maybe a DL getting my mind right, finding out if it's a medicine I need to take or exercises I need to do, uh, opposed to waiting, you know, two months into the season, finally spilling my guts out and it just being too late for everybody. The angels put you on waivers and the pirates pick you up. You get your first ever, long extended big league look they they give mm -hmm. you 99 games did that feel like a fresh start or was it still just struggle every were you you know struggling when you would drive up to pnc park no so that was a fresh start and i was scared to death going into pittsburgh and starting that first game i got in the batter's box and um it didn't happen i was relaxed and I was like, all right, maybe, maybe you're working around this. You know, I had an off season of working on the mental health. I don't even really remember what I did, but I just had a break and I got away and the angels let me go. It was like, I just released that from my, uh, my mind, you know, and all those struggles. And now I'm here with a golden opportunity. Um, and then that first game, I think first at bat, I, smoked one in the gap the guy catches it and then in my next bat I you know double you know off the right center field wall uh, and then continued that for three or four games and I'm like all right finally this is gonna happen you're back you're a top prospect again that's it I'm cool I like Peter Gams was talking about me on ESPN I'm like yeah yeah we're good and then then it was uh it, some of the same mental struggles started to come in um 
and I was quiet about him there too. So you go, you have that season with Pittsburgh, you hit, you know, you hit free agency, you do AAA with the Rockies, AAA with the Royals, AAA with the Orioles. And then, you know, a, a lot of it seemingly more in the, more of the same as far as on the field, you head to, in 2014, you head to Sugarland. Walk mm-hmm. me through your 25 <laughs> games uh, with the, the newly AAA Sugarland Skeeters. How did you... How did you know that it was finally time to just like, hey, I need to put a bow on this career? <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost comical of like how your brain can get you to this point. But I go to Sugarland and I'm like, it doesn't, you don't get any lower than this. So let's go out and just smash. Let's just have fun. Stand how you want to stand in the batter's box. Take hacks. Don't worry about striking out. There's nowhere else to go from here or you're out. So there wasn't any pressure going in. And then, you know, they fill the stands with like 4,000 people. They, have they get a, a lot in Sugarland. Yeah, they, so they're back maxing out for indie ball. And then we're behind the center field wall, and we have to get into these oldie cars. And they're driving us like around the, the outfield on the morning track. And they're, uh, they're announcing us in these old school cars. And then I start getting panic attack. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. I was like, an independent ball, Brandon, for real? You know, like, I'm talking to myself like, this is not happening. And then I was like, well, I was like, this probably isn't going to last long. And I went out and it didn't last long. <laughs> was there relief when you, when you hung it up? There was, a, there was a sense of, I don't have to do that. that I don't, maybe I don't have to have that feeling anymore. And then there was a... Uh, scared to death feel of what the hell am I going to do now? Because I've always envisioned a hundred million dollar career and then possibly in the hall of fame. And uh, that's not happening. So what was, what was the ensuing plan then? What did you do for 2015? Cause 2016 you spent as a manager for tri city. What, what brought you back to, to baseball? Well, 2014 was, Gosh, it's just a blur. 15, um, I started doing some private lessons. Uh, just not even into baseball. Just not, uh, don't have the love for it. I have almost like a hate for it. Um, but it's a way that I can make money uh, and do something. So I did some private lessons just sparingly. and then Just because it was what you knew? Just what I knew. And I was uh, working at... Uh, um, the, uh, there's a facility there in Scottsdale, um, Mulder, Chad Mulder. He opened up a facility, the old Dimebacks catcher, uh, and I got to know him through hitting with Kevin Long in the off-seasons, and he, uh, he goes, you know, you can do lessons here, you know, just you know, pay me rent on the cages, and we'll call it good. And then uh, somebody else that was doing lessons there uh, named Ben Fritz uh, got a job with the Padres, uh, and he goes, hey, they're looking for a managing job. And I was like, well, maybe that's, maybe that's what I'm, I'm meant to do. So I went in for the interview. Uh, still not in a good spot mentally, not at home, not in baseball, not anywhere. Uh, but I'm like, all right, this is a fresh start. Um, and just the passion wasn't there yet. You know, it was, there was way too much showing up to the field and thinking about my struggles uh, to where I, you know, I got through it and I feel like I helped some kids along the way. I wasn't my best version for those two years. Um, I was well liked, but not, uh, I would say probably uh, well respected in the game. No, like I wasn't, you know, that driven type of coach that you need to have in the minor leagues. Uh, 
So I did two years of that and realized that that's not going to be my career at the moment. So what gets you to where you are today? You're running a facility in Montana. You're coaching. You're working with kids. You're back in baseball. I mean, one thing that I can identify with you in is that working in insurance will drive you to do nearly <laughs> anything else. But, but you chose coaching. You chose, you chose to come back to baseball, the thing that made you very unhappy for a stretch of time. What has, what has changed in your life to... to to give you happiness in doing this, because before we started recording, you told me you were enjoying it. So yeah, yeah. How, yeah. how did we get here? You know, there were so many different things that had to take place to get me uh, out of that rut. First was beating uh, my wife. Uh, now she was from Montana. Uh, we met in Arizona, and she just had a, a calming way about her um, that meshed with my uncalming way at the moment, <laughs> at the time. Um, and she just gave me this sense of ease that, you know, you can do whatever you want. You want to do insurance? You want to do this? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I didn't feel like I had to be Brandon, the baseball player. For the first time, I was just Brandon. Uh, so I, I found my identity as Brandon away from baseball um, and just decided, all right, what do I want to do from here? And uh, I went to um, visit Montana with her. And just the pace of life and the people, uh, I gravitated towards them. And when I thought of Arizona, unfortunately, with all your you know youth playing days, most of all your spring training playing days, there's so much memory of, uh, of that failure walking around Arizona. I felt like I was Brandon, the baseball player that I was trying to run from. Um, so I decided, hey, let's go out for an extended stay in Montana in 2017 and we went out, and I, my intentions were to, you know, stay for the summer, and I never came back. Um, that's when I got into uh, insurance. I was doing some lessons, not really loving them, you know. I was still had that edge of of baseball uh, has caused me so much pain, so I'm not really gonna uh, dive into it and get hurt again or whatever my mental state was telling me. Um, so I went into insurance and somehow passed the test. I mean, like not going to college, I studied for this test, I don't know how many hours. All I did was memorize it and throw it up on on the test and I and I passed. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's a and then the guy that's teaching me how to do it, you know, on this video is just driving me nuts. Um but I'm like, "Hey, I got my focus on something else. Maybe I'll be a really successful insurance agent." And I start going to work and I don't have baseball in my mind. I'm like, "Hey, this isn't so bad." And then about three months in, I'm like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and talking with my, my dad and my mom and my family here in Montana, they're like, my dad's saying was always like, you, you have a master's in baseball. Regardless of how your career went, what you've learned start to finish, your failures to your, you know, successes to uh, being at, at the very, very top, of anybody's list and being at the very, very bottom of everybody's list, uh, you can use that. Um, and when insurance started to not look so good, I started to view myself uh, as a success story, I guess. You know, in P- I'm one of two retired Major League Baseball players in Billings, Montana. So I, I felt like when, you know, I'm walking around and teaching these kids, they were looking at me like, wow, you played in the big leagues? 
And, you know, and the way that I, that I would, you know, treat the kids, the way they would treat me, the experience I have with parents, and it just all started to come together. And it, it was just by luck that Billings happens to be a uh, baseball, uh, baseball town. So with, with regards to that experience, especially going through mental health struggles, you're not the, you're, you're not the first baseball player to go through that. You're not going to be the last. Um, I, you know, I think there was a big success story in this, this year's playoffs with Tyler Matzik. I remember mm-hmm. specifically when he was in the minors, they, he, he literally went home and had to regroup. <laughs> what, if you were a, a lot of the time on this podcast, I'll kind of wrap up with asking, you know, what would you tell yourself before you sign? But what would you tell yourself and anyone like you who is going through any sort of struggle with their mental health while playing baseball? And what would you like to see? What What do you think the ideal response is from an organization when a player of any caliber, their top prospect or their, you know, backup catcher in short season is going through that? Yeah, I, you know, this is something that's gone through my mind a, a ton and in envisioning myself back in professional baseball and trying to help at some point and in expressing what goes on in the mind of a young kid with his only dream of being an everyday big leaguer. Uh, when that starts to get overshadowed by doubt um, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, then, you know, we have somebody that's mentally struggling and that mental struggle of the brain is the same thing of, you know, um, <laughs> hamstring you know pull you know you can get back on top you just have to go you know get some you know work in the training room you know you can go get work on on the mental side if that is taking that that kid and putting him on the dl for two weeks um but i think early recognition of it is is huge and when i coach it doesn't take but you know four at bats and a 20-minute conversation to find out where this prospect or where this kid might be. You can see it in their eyes. You can, um, you know that there's other struggles, but it takes, um, it takes a lot of effort to get to know each player and why they might be struggling. And that's the hard part is, you know, you have coaches that are designated to do, you know, certain things all day, every day in the big leagues. Uh, and there is some mental guys that are designated in that position now um, but for me to get into these kids' minds uh, in a professional level or at a 12-year-old level, I have to, you know, f- what's going on through their brain? What are they scared of? What are they excited about? What's going on at home? Do you have any addiction issues? You know, there's just so many things that go into it. And if you don't put in the effort to find that out, then this kid is going to be out of the game in two years when it could have been stopped right then and there. And you can tell when the guys in the game, you know the guys that have addiction issues, the guys that have mental issues. Um, coaches can't say that they don't see it because I know every coach that was an alcoholic. You know, you just know. It's not like those things get hidden when you spend that much time together. So I hate to see things get you know swept under the rug because then you're setting up that person. Not, not for not having success in the big leagues. It's what is he going to do when that uniform is taken off? And that is the part, the part that gets scary for a lot of guys is that they have their mind and their focus only on getting to the big leagues and they mentally struggle. They can't really tell anybody because then you're going to be labeled for the rest of your playing day. So you try to fight through it and then all of a sudden you wake up and it's gone. 
and you're an alcoholic and you don't have a college education and you're looking at yourself in the mirror like, oh, shit. Well, uh, Brandon, I've got a couple more things for you, and then I'm going to let you get out of here. Um, this, is, this has been an incredibly rewarding conversation. Uh, I'm very grateful you've taken this time. I, I, want to, I want to ask you as kind of we wrap up, just looking back, kind of how you look back at your career. I want to ask you about the word bust because, <laughs> well, in baseball, and this is something I've, I've thought about a lot with the series, and, you know, if a you know when we think of a, an NBA or NFL draft bus, like we think of Jamarcus Russell, mm-hmm. a guy you know drafted first overall and played in the league, and it didn't go well at the highest level and busted out, you know, flamed out at the highest level. And for Jamarcus Russell, that was for a variety of variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, with with the MLB draft and how MLB works and how prospect coverage works, you look at your first round, you are thought of in this first round is a bust, but you look at this first round and there are nine guys you've never heard of that didn't reach the majors. Another couple who played less than 200 games. When you look at your career, how do you feel about it? Is that, is that a word that you will incorporate to how you feel? What is your, your main takeaway from your 10 years in pro ball? Yeah. When that, uh, and, article last year came out in the LA Times and it I think it actually used the word bust and I had friends like what the heck you were in a bus you made it to the big leagues and I'm but to me I, I always viewed it like yeah I was uh the can't miss that missed and um looking back I feel like I was a can't miss that missed that was now given so many tools to help somebody from five years old to 70 years old in this game um and that's when I started to transition my mind around myself being a success because I couldn't look at my numbers. I couldn't look at, you know, what I accomplished in the minor leagues and feel good about it numbers-wise. I just can't. Um, I didn't have the career I wanted to numbers-wise, and I gained so much from that to where now the reward is, you know, the kids that I work with that are in town that go, you know, parents come to me, my son is struggling mentally that we heard that he, he needs to talk to you. And I go and talk with him with 30 minutes in my office and we don't even hit, you know, and I get to know him and I know that I'm making an impact on him. Um, that it took that for me to look back as a, uh, as a success. And then I just lean on some of my stats. So some of these young kids can, uh, they'll believe me when I'm teaching hitting. Yeah, you gotta you gotta show them you gotta show them 05. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, I said, just look at my 05 stats. Don't you dare turn around my major league card. <laughs> uh, pretty fair to say that you are happier now giving hitting lessons in Billings, Montana, than making six figures playing for the Angels in 2010. Yes, sir. I mean, and that's just that's just the. I want to say it's a choice of the mind, but it's the nature of the mind that. Uh, thank God for my wife and family and God Himself that. I was able to overcome that. That would be a great note to end this podcast on, but I'm not not letting you get out of here without the <laughs> rapid fire, which has become my one of my favorite parts of doing this. I've got, I've got a few quick ones for you, and then you are you are free to go. Uh, favorite minor league ballpark? Oh, Rancho. I had so many homers there. That's that's fair. I kind of I kind of <laughs> assumed that'd be the answer. Least favorite minor league ballpark? Uh, it had to be. It probably was the one I played here in Billings, but on the old field. I think we got. I don't even think. I think we got dressed in the parking lot. Oh man, yeah. I think they've. I think they've. Uh, they've. They did not make the uh, the one twenty cut. <laughs> no. Best pitcher you ever faced? Uh, I faced Brandon League 
throwing 90 something miles an hour and it sank two feet and I, I it just didn't make sense to me wearing the reliever specs with a like a mohawk yes. or a faux hawk, <laughs> and he, he, had and he knew he was cool too just the way he looked like this guy's cool and he's got good stuff it was classic late 2000s reliever <laughs> stuff from brandon Lee. yeah uh best food city in minor league baseball oh minor league baseball there's a i lot can't of... i can't give you major league baseball because you you play in la yeah, I'm going to go with Salt Lake, my home city. They, they took care of us there. That was just a great place to continue to go back to. Favorite home run you ever hit? Oh, that's got to be my home run in Cuba uh, for the Olympic qualifier in the last game to get us there. Farthest home run you ever hit? Sometime in 2005. I had <laughs> just, to go one, just one of them? <laughs> I, one I hit of the, the ball farther at a, yeah, like 180 pounds than I did at 230. So, I mean, it was... We'll just say like 500 feet. No, it's probably like 460. Well, Brandon Wood, that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much for taking the time. One from Fina on the farm. Really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. Of course. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Another huge thanks to Brandon Wood for taking the time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, rate, and leave a review. And catch us in two weeks on Tuesday with former big league infielder Ty Kelly. Thanks for listening. 